We're in Joel chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, so let's uh, give our attention to the Word of God here on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, when Peter stood up to preach the very first sermon, he preached from this text. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears fruit, its fruit, the fig tree and vines give their full yield. Be glad, O children of God, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats will, shall, will overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people will never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the, of the Lord comes." And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. One of the reasons that I wanted to uh, preach from Joel and felt led to do it is because I love particularly, I think it's verse 25, I've used it many times in caring for people uh, that God says, I'll restore to you the years the locusts have eaten away. I uh, got my Time magazine uh, about six weeks ago and it says the lost year. It was all about what people have lost over this past year. And many of you have experienced loss that was never intended to be. None of us have ever lived through it, but you've lost something. And I want you to hear the promise here. God says, I'm going to give back to you what you've lost. And you go, what? But it's here uh, that God promises to give back to us because the gospel works backwards in the presence and forward. Some of you know uh, the great story uh, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Aslan lets the wicked witch kill him and the table breaks. And the, basically C.S. Lewis says, and the wicked witch and all those who were around her who were evil didn't understand how 
it would work backwards and presence and forward. So the breaking of the table with Aslan sacrifice for the land would do this amazing thing going backwards and forwards. Some of you in the Lord of the Rings know that Tolkien uh, coined this word, eucatastrophe. How can God bring good out of bad things? And probably one of the best lines in the Lord of the Rings, and this is not a spoiler alert, it's after Sam and Frodo have survived. They've won the great victory. And Sam is recovering in Rivendell, and Gandalf is sitting there waiting for him to wake up. And Sam wakes up and he goes, Gandalf, is that you? I thought I was dead. I thought you were dead. And he just kind of starts babbling as Samwise would do. And then he says this great line, which is from Tolkien, who loved Jesus, loved the gospel. He says, basically, is everything sad going to come untrue? Now, why we can get excited about what Jesus has done? This is the gospel. Everything sad will come untrue because of what Christ has done, what he's doing, and what he will accomplish on that day when he re uh, returns. In this passage, we see God providing for his people. We see God protecting his people. We see people uh, who are poured out on uh, through the Spirit of God. So we want to think, first of all, about how God has pr promised to provide for us. Um, uh, many of you love creation. You love the importance of our creation. I remember Francis Schaeffer many years ago put out a big manifesto basically saying that as Christians, this was, he was a leader in the 70s, 80s, that as Christians we should outdistance everyone else in our love for creation, for the land, for the earth, the sea. And it's a powerful thing. But notice how this passage starts. So if those of you who are interested in preserving, protecting our creation, it says, then the Lord became jealous for his land. The God is jealous for his creation because he made it. Now we get a little glimpse of what it looks like now, but I can't wait to see what it's going to look like when we live in the new heavens and earth. And then God says, and he had pity on his people. Um, and then God says, I'm going to provide for you. So here's the provision. Behold, I'm sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will, make no, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Two things God's going to provide for them. They had lost every way to physically sustain themselves. And God says, because I'm going to renew the land, I'm going to bring the land back to life. So things work the way I created them to work. You're going, to get, you're going to be provided for. And then the next thing he says, and I will take away the reproach that's among you. Now, when you back up into verse 17, Joel says, why would you continue to live the way you are? Because people say, where is your God? Where is your God? The reproach on the church, on us as Christians, is there are many in Cambridge who walk by this church and wonder what's going on and why are we here? But their question is, where is your God? Where is he? You say you believe in God. I don't see it making any difference in your life or in the life of our culture. And so the reproach of experiencing that and having people in your family or coworkers look at you going, he's the weird one. He's the believer. She's the believer in the lab that everybody goes, oh, Jesus free, watch out. You know, so there's a level of reproach that we live in even today that God wants to lift, lift from us. Now, one of the things when you study Joel, it's hard to date it when it actually happened. 
Uh, is it in the 800s, 900s? Is it in the middle of that century? Is it later than that, heading into the time of Jesus? We're not sure. But one of the commentators on it says this so well. He says, this book was written in such a way we can really date it and historically connect it because it is to have this ongoing present quality to it that speaks to us. In verse 20, God not only says that he is removing um, the lack of abundance that we have, he's going to restore the land, he's going to supply for us and remove our reproach. He says, I'm going to protect you from the enemies, the people who've come from the north. And for those of you who like literature and uh, like storytelling, I mean, this is great. Those who like Lord of the Rings, the orcs were nasty uh, in Tolkien's imagination. And it says the stench and the foul smell of, uh, smell of him who would be Sauron uh, will rise, but just the stench of evil and it, when it's presence. Um, and then God gives a little, you know, sort of, hey, pay attention now, because a lot of people think he's the greatest. Evils will prevail. But notice in verse 21, it says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great, great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Now, one of the things to know about Valerie is my wife, so here today, she loves cows, okay? So she, is, she just loves cows. One time we did a little vacation, which as my being a loving, sacrificial husband said, okay, we'll do that. Um, we went on vacation and we did a place where you stay on a farm. You know, and so you have your own cabin, you stay on the farm, but you get to do what the farmers are doing. So, which to Valerie is like, ah, oh, you know, I'm in heaven, and I'm going, oh, you know, <laughs> this is, but because I love Valerie, but one of my great memories from that is her, and this family would let animals run in and out of their big farmhouse, and there were, and I remember Valerie was sitting in their living room with a little lamb and had a bottle of milk and was nursing this little lamb, and you know, again, for Bowery, that's what's like heaven. That's heaven. But we all know the beauty of when we are connected to creation, to animals, to the land, to the air, to the sea, to the sky, and we begin to sense the wonder of it, and it gives great joy. But if you're driving with Bowery and there are cows over there, there's always go, oh, look at the cows. <laughs> look at the cows. And so there's a blessing that creation has and longs for in the redemption, our redemption, and all that good stuff that comes with that. So be glad, O children of the Lord, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and latter rain as before. Now this picture of, again, this is going to be the pouring out um, some of you have been in parts of the world, I'm sure you have it up here, where you, there are different kinds of snow when it snows. There's powder, there's wet snow, all those kind of things. Well, one summer, Valerie and I took our children in when they were younger, and we lived in uh, Dublin, Ireland uh, for a few weeks, and we went over there. And in Ireland, they talk about different kinds of rain. So when it's a gentle rain, they say that's a soft rain. God says, I'm going to provide all kinds of rain, which again is an image of him pouring out his love on us to renew and restore the earth. And so God says, I'm going to pour out the rain. I'm going to do that. But it's also a covenantal sign for those of you who study the Bible that when God removes his blessing, there's no rain. 
Uh, there's a drought. It's an image not only for the drought of the physical need we have for rain, but it's also a picture of the drought of hearing the Word of God. Now, if again, uh, and I might be talking about you too much, but you can fuss at me later. But anyway, if you ask Valerie what one of her favorite songs is, it's from James Taylor, Carolina boy who now lives in Massachusetts. Um, and uh, it's in that great album CD of Carolina on my mind. But it's the song, shower the people you love with love. Show them the way that you feel. Now, if we're farmers and we're people who depend on rain and there's no rain, it's, it's, it's like boom. I have a good friend who lives in Colorado and they've been in a pretty serious drought for a while and he lives up uh, in the Breckenridge area and just the suffering of the land and the need for rain. So in the same way that we see the people of God dry up and wither, we need the rain, we need the, the gospel, the beauty of the Holy Spirit to fall among us the way the rain does. And uh, my good friend Rick, who was the pastor here, loved to use this illustration, as I do, is that Luther talked about when you see your need for Jesus and the gospel, the only thing you can do is be ground, be the ground, and just say, rain on me. Rain on me, Jesus. Because when you, there's the ground, there's nothing that you can do but wait for the rain. And when the Holy Spirit's being poured into your life, again, there's a lot that we could say here um, about that, but Luke eleven thirteen 13 is a great promise where Jesus said, if you being evil know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much will your Father give the Holy Spirit? That when the Holy Spirit's being poured out, when it begins to rain on you that there's nothing you can do because salvation, relationship with God is all this great gift. Just like we can't control nature, we can't control it, we think that we can, but we are totally dependent on the Creator to make it work. We're totally dependent on the Creator to show us um, the beauty of our God um, in the Gospel. So here's your uh, daring uh, application from the passage today. I want you this week, because most of you are at work or in school or your friends, uh, uh, you know, they'll say to you, how are you doing? And in light of this passage, because we all share and believe in the gospel, uh, I want you to say, amazing. I'm, ama I'm doing amazing. So let me tell you where I get this from. There's a nurse that... Uh, uh, that I see when I go to see one of my doctors and I'll always say to him, Sterling, how are you doing? And he'll go, amazing. And I kind of always, you know, I'll cock my head, really? <laughs> you know? And, uh, but what I know, what he's telling me is, I'm amazing because grace is amazing. God's love for me is amazing. So as you walk into work uh, tomorrow and somebody says, how are you, Leonard? How are you doing? Leonard says, amazing. Well, what, you know, for the person who's not a believer or knows, what in the world are you telling, say more? So I was, uh, I tried this out on Friday. I was in Winston-Salem and had lunch with a good friend of mine. And I was, went up to the woman who was a hostess to seat us and walked up and said, table for two. And she said, all right, I'll take you here. And she says, how are you? And I went, amazing. And she goes, I like that. <laughs> I like that. But because, again, because the gospel is true and everything sad is going to come untrue because of Jesus, we should be the most amazed and amazing people to be around because the love of God is soaking us.
It's thrilling us. It's making the most important reality that we can share this side of heaven for God so loved he gave his son, his only son, that as we believe in him, that if I greet you and say, hey, Mike, how are you? Uh, you say, amazing. If I say, Rosemary, how are you? She goes, amazing. Okay, I'm amazed. And that's what's in this passage is this pouring out of the spirit that's coming. But the thing that we have to pay attention to here is, is that in the light of how hard life is and the suffering that's all around us, because this great commentator old Joel says, it's how do you see the goodness of God and the mystery of God because we're surrounded by so much suffering and hardship and heartache. How do you make sense of that? How do you talk to people and say, you're saying it's amazing, but what about this? One of the biggest challenges for all of us who are followers of Jesus is to embrace the reality that we all suffer. Uh, all who are godly will suffer, just like the people who don't know Jesus, and we, the rain falls on all of us, okay? We all experience suffering. It probably one of the most difficult seasons of my life when I had lost the most important job I had ever hoped for. I thought I'd have that job today, and I was asked to resign. So I'm in my early 50s, um, and I, it was devastating. It was devastating. I felt like I lost so much, and I did lose so much through that. It was the reality. And during that time of recovery, where I doubted whether I'd ever be a pastor again, I doubted my salvation. I was doubting everything. Uh, there was a man who worked in a counseling ministry called the Christian Counseling Education Foundation in Philadelphia. He's a friend of mine. He actually went to Harvard, um, and an amazing guy who is now with Jesus. Uh, and it's a great story of how he came to Christ at Harvard through a janitor uh, on campus who witnessed to him. It's just a great story, but that's another story. I'm always tempted to go down these rabbit trails, um, and I'm not going to go there. But David has a great book called Grace and Suffering. So if you're dealing with loss, if you're doubting God's commitment to restore you and help you through what you've lost, through what's been done to you, what you've done to others, or both, it's, it's a great book, but I'm going to summarize right here because it's in this text because God says, I'm going to remove your shame. You will not feel ashamed any longer. You will not feel shame. So we got to um, define shame. Sin means I do bad things and I'm held accountable for bad things. Shame is I believe I'm a bad person. I believe I'm hopeless. I believe there's some flaw internally in me that will always curse me rather than let me be a blessing. There is something profoundly in my identity that is wrong. So when you're going through suffering and you're living under shame, um, your response can be, I, I deserve this. <laughs> I deserve to lose a lot. Look at what I've done. Uh, because I'm incurably a sinner, incurably bad. There is something really wrong with me. So I deserve this. Or if you're on the other side of being somebody who is constantly striving and working hard to prove how good you are, your response would be the natural one. Why me? Why is this happening to me right now? Why me, God? Why did I lose this job? Why did this person break up with me? Why did my parents 
turn away from me? Why did my parents get divorced? You can go right down the list of why do these things happen? Why me, God? Now, David, who is a masterful counselor, we worked through a lot of my complaining about what happened to me. And then he began to gently introduce to me what's in this promises in this passage in the gospel. And the question you need to ask yourself right now is, why would Jesus come into this broken world of suffering and loss and pain? God, why would you come here? Because to get past all your fears and failures, your objections, your doubts, your unbelief, is to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, why would you come into this world? And what he began to do and help me with was to realize that Jesus had come for me and in his great plan for my life and whatever, which leads me to being here today and other great stuff, is that uh, God is always painting on a bigger canvas than we can see. God is the great artist. And if you've been through hardship and loss and you're suffering here today, Jesus has come to enter into the fellowship of your story and bless you with his suffering for you and with you. Back when Rick and I were starting the church in Winston-Salem in the early 80s, um, I was sitting at a breakfast meeting with a group of guys and I was complaining about how slack the church was and where was the commitment, where was the love, where was, you know, I was just complaining. And one of my dear friends said, you know, Clyde, we've heard a lot about the fellowship of Clyde's suffering. Could we hear about the fellowship of Jesus' suffering? Now, that question, again, God has used in my life over and over. You're, I don't hear a lot about the fellowship of your suffering, but where Jesus is right now ready to enter into the fellowship so you'll know him through why he came for you. Because God never said that by making himself real to us, we would not suffer. But when we do suffer, we want to become more like him. There's a fellowship with Christ that we can have no other way than to enter into his suffering and death and what he went through for us. I had a chance a few years ago to be in Ankara, Turkey, and meet with the underground church there. I met with this young guy um, and, uh, uh, who was a deacon in a Baptist church there, doing all kinds of mercy ministry. And we'll say his name is Adam. That wasn't his name, but I'm meeting with, with Adam with a few other brothers. We're investigating what God's doing in the whole refugee resettlement, particularly Christians coming from Aleppo into Turkey, which made their life even harder. So I'm talking to Adam and I said, Adam, how did you become a Christian? And he told me about, he grew up in a Muslim family. His father had two wives. The, his mother was the one who was slighted and not loved very much at all. And uh, he always felt left out from the special love the father gave to his other family and not to his family. And so his mother started taking them to a Baptist church, um, him and his sister, and they started going. Now, at the same time, his father was making him go uh, to the temple where the Muslim work goes on. And, um, and as a young boy, he had to memorize the Koran. But because he had learning issues, he could not memorize. And so if you didn't do your memory work, you were taken outside and you were beaten uh, outside behind um, the mosque. And, uh, and he, just, he just remembered how embarrassed and ashamed he was because he was beaten because he couldn't memorize the Koran. 
So he said, one Sunday, my mom took us into the uh, Baptist church and uh, the preacher's preaching on the crucifixion of Christ. And he said, as I listened, as I listened to him describe that Jesus was beaten for me, it clicked. And then he got a big smile. Jesus has suffered for me. He was beaten the way I was beaten. And then out of that, he met Jesus. And out of that, he's doing unbelievable ministry in Ankara, Turkey. Uh, I mean, just incredible street ministry. I mean, it's just so exciting. But he connected for him. And when you and I connect with the fact that Jesus has suffered for us, then here's the question my friend David Powelson would say, why not me? Now think about everything that's represented here in terms of loss and failure and sin and brokenness and evil. Why not me? Why not me be a part of that from the standpoint of Jesus wants to take my involvement in that story, that canvas that he's painting on. Why not me be in that role of being an ambassador of amazing grace to people who are suffering? You see, what we struggle with is, God, why me? Why isn't getting better? Our hearts get cold, and we're not paying attention to how God has used the pandemic to call us all to pay attention to what the people of Joel needed to hear in that day, is that they were so enamored with other things to give them life that they, they were, you know, they were missing it. And God says, I'm going to wake you up to what you're missing because you're really putting your trust in other things that really are not going to help you. And then here's this promise for those of us who have children who wandered off, or children here who've yet. It says the promise is that when the Spirit is poured out, when the Spirit of God is poured out, um, then all our sons and daughters shall prophesy. All will prophesy. But because our covenant children will come to speak the mighty works of God. And some of you children might think, not me. <laughs> That's not going to happen to me. It might happen to my sister or my brother. That's not happened to me. I've already listened to all this stuff. I'm checking out. But God's going to check in. He's going to surprise you. And you're going to find yourself someday hearing a message about Jesus' death and suffering and resurrection for you. And you go, he did it for me. He did it for me. As we read through to the end of the uh, passage, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I mean, it's so rich here. I mean, there's so many good things to think about. But uh, as we close, I want you to think this morning, where do you feel hopeless this morning? Maybe you feel the shame of being incurably hopeless. Jesus went to the cross to experience the hopelessness of the eternal judgment of hell. For you and me. Where do you feel cursed? Jesus was cursed for you. Where do you feel shame? He was shamed for you. And at the cross, he shamed your greatest shame. Wow. <laughs> Jesus undid the power of it. It has no power of you, and it does not define you. I remember uh, another counselor that worked with me along the way, and we were talking along. He says, Clyde, you really have a good understanding of your identity in Christ. But where is the intimacy with Christ? Where is the intimacy? And it was spot on, laser-like surgery on my soul. Because it's a little cheesy, the word intimacy, intimacy. When I let Jesus look into my heart and where shame was, he broke the power of it in ways that someday I hope I can tell you the story. 
But I will tell you, when Jesus sent me, and this is after being a follower with Jesus for many years, when Jesus met me and showed me his power to free me from my shame, I was different. Next to my coming to Christ at 19 years old, in that moment, I knew a power and a reality that only God could bring me. And I invite you to that today. So our great prophet, Jesus, defeated sin, death, and hell. And here's Joel 2, uh, 32 at the very end. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today, do you need to be saved, delivered, rescued from yourself or from what you've been through? Jesus is ready. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who will escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Is the Lord calling you today? Listen, is he calling you today to be saved, to be rescued? Because he's pouring out his spirit on Pentecost Sunday. Let's pray. Thank you for the hope and the beauty of the gospel, Jesus, what you've done for us and what you're doing for us. It is staggering to behold the beauty of Pentecost, the pouring out of your spirit that Peter preached on in Acts 2. And as we close, Lord, we want to uh, just really reflect on this reality. And and it is this, that in that day you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Cambridge to the ends of the earth. And we want to thank you. Amen.